Welcome to Getting to the Core, a Wayne County Regional Educational Service Agency podcast. We invite you to join us as we discuss a variety of educational topics and hopefully plant a few seeds that get to the core of our mission, leading, learning for all. All right, hello everybody. My name is Rich Backlor. I'm a science consultant for Wayne Risa, and I'm here on the line today with Christy Hanby, a math consultant. Hi, Christy. Hi, Rich. And also our uh, ELA consultant, Michelle Wagner. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Rich. So, you guys, one of the things that I missed most about um, working with you guys is actually being able to walk into your office or, or down the hall and have a conversation. And so, um, I'm really appreciating you guys jumping on the, the lunch hour conversation with me today. And um, we're going to have a little chat about the distance learning playbook. Before we get started into that, I, I was wondering, you know, we're all um, teachers and we're all parents as well. So um, just as a little check-in, I'm wondering if uh, you could tell us a little bit about how your experience has been going in the distance learning space as a parent and as a teacher. Uh, so I can start. I think probably uh, what a lot of people were experiencing in the, in, the ex in the spring was that there was this initial excitement. At least my students are older or my kiddos are older, so they had some excitement when they first got sent home from school, but that faded pretty quickly. Um, but there wasn't a lot of pressure in the spring. And so there wasn't also, there was just wasn't a lot of stress in the spring. Um, I think it wasn't working very well, but everybody knew that and they were okay with it. Um, this school year has been quite a bit different. Um, I think my kids had some expectations of things being better, and to some extent they are. Um, there's a lot more structure, there's routine, there's a lot more organization. Um, I do think that some of their frustrations that were frustrations in the face-to-face -face environment are actually amplified in the virtual setting. So like not wanting to do, for example, repetitious math problems or searching for definitions in text. That wasn't something they enjoyed in the face-to-face -face environment and in the virtual setting. I think that those frustrations have become even more amplified. So um, I just think that they want to be more creative and inventive than that. And they, there isn't any sort of structure that says to them, you, like, you have to keep persevering on this. And it's easy yeah. to get frustrated and walk away. That's interesting. And I, I, my kids are also a little bit older. Um, I have two college-age kids. And, and you know, they experience the same thing um, where they're really interested in the classes they're taking because they have complete control over that. But they would really like to have a little bit more um, engagement in terms of how the material is, is or how they're experiencing the material. So, Michelle, what about you? So I concur with Christy. There's definitely much more structure this fall than there was in the spring. I also, I have little ones, and so there's definitely less fear and uncertainty in terms of what's going to happen tomorrow. I think when all of this started, my son in particular, who was in second grade, didn't understand why suddenly he couldn't see his teacher or couldn't see his classmates. And I think that now this has been going on long enough where he understands kind of where we are in terms of just the pandemic in general. And so there's less fear in that way. But I also think it's really hard for the little ones to get into a routine because they can't anticipate what tomorrow will be, especially um, if they're hybrid. So my children are hybrid. So some days they're learning from home and some days they go to school. And it's never, it's never consistent enough to feel like they're in a routine where they know what's happening next. So that's been really strange. And then the final thing that I'd say is 
really hard, even for me, is that the lines are so blurred now between home and school. And there's not that clear cut, it's 3.30, we're done with school. School kind of stretches throughout the evening as well. And yes, there are lots of breaks. No one's consistently looking at a computer screen for seven hours. However, there's that looming pressure of, I've got to get this assignment in before tomorrow. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, the, the idea of routines, because in my neighborhood, there are a number of, of little kids, and I can always tell when they're on break because they come running out of their houses and run around the neighborhood. And then they, you know, 10 minutes later, they go back inside. And so the, the um, playbook that we got from uh, Fisher, Fry and Hattie, well-known researchers, um, you know, is based on some observations they made back in the spring. I think they interviewed something like 70 different teachers. Um, so we should say there's a little caveat to this that, and, and you guys have mentioned this already that, um, what occurred in the spring and what is happening, you know, here in the beginning of the school um, are not really the same thing. Like we were in crisis mode at the beginning um, and, and we've had the summer to sort of plan and think and grow and learn from, from those experiences. But the playbook has some, some interesting topics. And so I thought we would um, dive into that a little bit. Um, we get to sit at the, the intermediate school district level. And so we're, we're in this weird me medium space between research and practice. Um, where do you think this book fits in that sort of space? Like, how do you see teachers using this, this kind of book or, or other resources? So I can address that a little bit. I think that one of the hardest things about being a teacher is trying to sort through all of the noise that might be out there with, you know, just different edge of celebrities or if you like Twitter and just following different people and, and on top of that, just the different initiatives and programs. And so I really think that we have to approach any new thing, in this case, um, the playbook, with a critical lens. And I'm all about reading critically anyway. But trying to make connections between what we know to be true of the subject area in which we are teaching, and then also how we can make that fit within the current realities. So I know that personally, whenever I see something that John Hattie has written, I immediately think about effect size. So when I pick up a text like this, I'm really looking for those practices that have the greatest impact on students. So I'm looking at where I'm going to get the most bang for my buck. And I'm also looking for those connections to literacy and those ideas that make it easier to engage. You have a friend with you. She's about to go outside. <laughs> so I'm also looking for those connections to literacy and those ideas that it will make it easier for students to read, to write, to speak, and to listen to one another because I think that that's in the end really what I want my students to be doing. So really looking through that lens. Yeah, Christy, how about you? Where do you, where do you feel like this book sits in the list so, of resources? Yeah, so we were similarly in the mathematics consultant world, we were inundated with resources in the spring. And I think teachers, even our curriculum directors were saying, you know, it's just so many resources help us sort through them all. Um, so the guidance that I was reading in mathematics, and it's the guidance that we knew, you know, previous to being virtual, is um, really focusing on creating spaces that are collaborative in nature, that position students to figure out something interesting, um, something engaging, encouraging them to work together um, and work on interesting problems or what you in science call phenomena that lead to learning really important ideas in math and science. So, for example, what happens when I divide by a number smaller than one and why does that occur? So not just doing division with decimals as denominators, but just asking ourselves what happens when we divide by a number that's less than one. 
And why does it happen that when I divide, that thing is getting bigger? That didn't happen when I was in younger elementary school. Um, and so when I look at this book, I'm looking for those places where they give the kind of guidance for how do I work in those collaborative ways? How do I give students voice and flexibility in the work that they do in math and science and do it in a virtual space? So there are a few places in the book where it addresses that. I think I'd also say that Fisher and Fry are um, first and foremost literacy researchers, I believe. And so there's also a lot of practices in here that are related to literacy practice. And so I've had to kind of weed through and look for those opportunities that really highlight best practice in math and in science. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, almost everything that we see coming out starts with math or, and ELA. So as a science person, I find that to be always, always the case, right? Like, how do I find the science niche in these, these strategies? Um, so it's interesting you, you bring that up. Um, one of the things they talk about or they begin in the book is, is they talk about self-care strategies, um, not only for your kids, but for the teachers as well. Do you guys have any um, successes in that space right now? Um, so I will say that even as an adult, I have found it difficult to set the boundaries between work and home especially, and those of us that are working in ISDs tend to be working a lot of later afternoons and evenings because that's when teachers have more availability. And so that's made it even harder, you know, sending text messages to the kids at three o'clock saying, this is what's for dinner, it's in the kitchen, but I'll be working until seven. Um, so it's been really hard to find those boundaries, but I'm, I'm starting to get better at it. If it's hard for me, then I have to remind myself that it's even more difficult for my kids because they maybe don't even understand why it's important to separate those things for their own self-care. Some of self-care has been taking care of my own boundaries and routines and keeping things separate. Um, but it's also been recognizing that I live in a house full of adolescents. <laughs> <laughs> if they haven't figured it out just yet, that's okay. And so I want them to, you know, sit up and do their work from 7.50 to 2.42, but they're tending to work more like 8.30 to 11.30 in the evening. And I have to let that go um, and hope that they get to a point where they recognize that it's easier for them to just put in a day from 8 to 3 and be able to walk away from it at 3 o'clock. But they're yeah. not yet. Yeah, it, it is really tough with the boundaries. Um, but it's all about like kind of creating these new habits because we're not bound by space and time in the same way that we were before. Um, Michelle, how about you? So I, again, I agree with a lot of what Christy just shared, and I'm sure I'm not the only educator mom who lives this consistent struggle of trying to separate herself from her job. And so I think even in the best of times, I have a hard time turning off. There's always one more thing I could do you know, and one more thing that I feel like I need to do in order to help further whatever it is that I'm trying to accomplish. But I think that now that I'm working from home, that is magnified tenfold. And I think that that's, that's a real struggle. And especially with littles at home, you know, just because I'm working from home doesn't mean they don't need lunch or doesn't need me mean that they don't need that chance to go outside for a quick run around the block. And I'm the one who has to make sure all those things happen if they're home with me. And so that's, that's been a struggle to try and to navigate all of that. 
where I think when under normal situations, you can get them all ready and then you put them on a bus or you drop them off at school and they're, they're occupied for that full eight hours. And then you see them again and it's a different time or a different part of the day where now that's all kind of meshed together as one. So I think we're just trying to navigate that. And I also think that it's really one success that I've had is I've had to be really intentional with saying there will be no work between these hours because we get so little time with our kids. We need to make sure that we're keeping bedtime sacred and dinner time sacred. And so I'm, I feel more successful at that. Yeah. Super important to have those you know, routines and, and set those limits. Um, speaking of which, uh, the book kind of goes into, or one of the modules in the books talks about starting with the standards and, and as you know, ISD consultants, I think one of our, our main objectives in, in our work is to help teachers um, use standards aligned research-based curricula and, and also to implement those things with, um, you know, with, I don't want to say fidelity, but with, with good quality classroom practices, right? So um, what do you think the biggest challenge has been in um, translating research-based aligned curriculum and, and, and practices to remote settings or to distance learning? So I think this is a challenge even beyond just remote settings, right? It's if you have the curriculum, how do you make it work for the students that you're serving? And I think that being remote adds that extra layer of making sure that the students understand what's expected, but then also making sure that they have the tools to access that, that curricular resource. So I think it's just that extra layer of of stuff that needs to happen to make sure that the kids can access the learning. And I think that this is something that teachers are really good at in terms of figuring out, okay, this is the goal. How am I going to make this happen for my students when they're coming in at multiple levels or they're coming in with different baggage or different situations? How can we make all of this happen? And I think that we've added this huge layer of working from home now or teaching from home and that teachers have really had to be creative in terms of looking at what do they have and then what do their students have in order to figure out how to actually implement that online? So I, I, I think that math and science teachers have maybe found this really challenging. Um, so much of best practice, and I think that this is true in literacy too, is about listening to your students, about being able to sit with them in one-on-one -on -one conference with them or small group, collect, you know, get, get feedback from them. And, I think that this is what teachers are really challenged with right now. Um, I know from watching my own kiddos in our home that when teachers are asking those good questions and they're putting kids in breakout rooms, they're not always getting feedback from students. Um, and so trying to find the ways that we get the right information from teachers, or I'm sorry, from students about what they're understanding I think has been a real challenge. And I've been digging into this book to see if I can find a, a variety of ways to be able to show teachers how they gather that information from their students. Yeah, I, I would say from the science perspective, it's, it's kind of the same thing that um, Michelle kind of mentioned, there's two layers to it. And I felt like access, you know, teachers learning the LMS um, and putting lessons into the LMS was like, one stage of learning. Um, and then Christy, what you're talking about this, and you mentioned it before, the collaboration side of things, almost the, you know, the, the dis 
discourse moves that we talked about or that we've we've been pushing for the last several years um, you know learning tools that still allow us or the students to have those kind of collaborative moments has has been a huge challenge and and so um, I, I've seen a, a couple of the nice things in the book um, about setting up different types of meetings um, for specific purposes so some of the things that we've been saying in the science um, space is, you know, be very intentional about um, the things that kids can do asynchronously or outside of the meeting room space. Um, and then really hone in on those moments where you need the kids to interact with each other, um, with their models and their ideas. And that's been um, sort of an ongoing challenge at least in science classrooms as well. What about you guys? Have you heard, seen any other tools or, or any hints from the book that might help teachers um, deal with that? I really focus on that idea of feedback. And so as a literacy person, I know that importance of just making sure that students know where to go next because learning to read and learning to write well is not something that is necessarily linear. It doesn't, there's not one great, one clear-cut path towards reading proficiency or writing proficiency. And so we know that the best way to figure out where a child needs to go best is to sit down and have them read to you or have them or have them share their writing so that you know as a teacher where the best place for them to go next is. And that's what moves them forward. And so I really focused on that portion of the book that talked about feedback and how we need to make sure now more than ever that we're being very clear in what the students need to do and then where they need to go next. And so I really, I really appreciated that reminder of just, you mentioned even Rich, setting up different kinds of meetings, but even those one-on-one -on -one points where you can touch base with a child, even if it's over phone, however you can connect with that child, but actually still giving them the chance to listen to them read and listen to them write so that you can give them the feedback that they need to move them forward. Agreed. And so in mathematics, listening to students solve a problem is important, but we can also, if you have the right problem, we can also gather feedback from what they've written. Um, so one thing that we've seen teachers doing is putting together shared slide decks. So, um, you know, often in elementary schools, students are numbered because they have, you know, a numbered hook and a numbered cubby and a numbered, and so in this case, you just give them a numbered slide and um, they would do their work on that slide, but as a teacher, you can go through all of the slides within the deck and give comments by just clicking a comment on the Google slide. So that, that's one of the things that we've been doing in professional learning, but then as I was looking in the book and I was watching some of the videos this morning, um, I noticed a, another teacher saying that instead of giving her comments in text, she gives them in Google Voice so that her students can hear her voice. And she thinks that, and I think that's probably right, that especially younger students are going to gather more from a teacher's voice than from reading the text. And I think especially when you're talking about math or science, which might have some fairly technical language, um, the use of voice might be a better use of a feedback tool, like using a way to insert audio might be a better feedback tool than inserting it in text. So I thought that was useful and I'm going to share that with teachers soon. Yeah, I love that idea. I think that's also important with, um, you know, when we think about universal design for learning um, so in some of our uh, other populations or English language learners, um, you know, those kinds of supports, I think, are really, really important to do intentionally. 
Um, another vignette that I, I saw in the book that I really loved was um, the teacher who schedules during face-to-face -face time uh, two students to meet individually. So she asks uh, a student to show up 10 minutes early and then another student to show up 10 minutes or to stay 10 minutes afterwards. And she rotates her class through that. So every day during their time, she's meeting individually with two students. And over the course of the week, she gets through the majority of them. And, and she said that, that that time alone with those kids to um, just do a check-in or maybe ask a question about the lesson um, is really formative, right? And, and really gives her a lot of, of data uh, to work with and to help the entire class move forward with whatever they're working on. So I thought that was another really, really interesting way to go about it. So um, we're kind of running into the end of our time here today, but um, there were some really nice key points in the book. Um, if, if some of our teachers want to get a hold of you guys and, and talk more about the book or some other uh, issues related to teaching mathematics or ELA, where can they go or where, where can they get in touch with you guys? Um, there are ways to contact us through getting on the website. Um, I will say that if you're going to dig into this book as a math teacher, I think there's a couple places in it that really kind of hit the nail on the head as far as the research is concerned in math ed. And so I really liked what I was reading on page uh, 140 through 142. I know, like, as we were talking and putting this podcast together, we were thinking how difficult it is for teachers to take in too much information right now. Um, little bits is better. Um, so if you're listening to this as a math teacher, I would, I would highly recommend you just dig in there on page 140 through 142. And then page 110 could be really helpful, too, for helping you think about engaging mathematical tasks. And then if you have questions about those things, you can certainly reach out to anybody on the math team, um, or you can attend, um, we've been doing Thursday afternoon office hours. You can get in touch with us about how to connect with those, or we have been doing math leader meetings throughout the year in order to get information um, to those who are needing it. So I'm hoping that those are a few ways in which you can reach out to us and um, we can have more conversation. Awesome, Michelle. Sure, um, we can always be found. The literacy team can be found at risa.net and just click on the literacy tab and we're help, happy to help and assist in any way that you might need. But I did wanna just bring up one more piece from the book. At the end of the book, it really talks about how our goal should be to make learning better for our students, which I think is the same goal we've always had. And I'm just going to read a quick quote. Let's remember to leverage what we have learned from crisis online learning to prepare ourselves and our students for more robust and authentic future learning. And I think that in a nutshell, this experience has stretched us all to learn in new ways. And I think that that's one thing our, our children are responding to. They're learning in ways that I would never have imagined possible before. I mean, if you had told me last year that my seven-year-old would be scheduling a Zoom meeting with his teacher and putting that calendar invite into his calendar so he didn't forget, I wouldn't have believed that to be true. So I think that we really are helping our students to learn in different ways right now, and they are learning something. It may not have been what we thought they would learn, but they're learning in new and better ways, and I think that's going to bring success in the future. It's a really good point, Michelle. It's an excellent point and a great way to wrap it up. So I really appreciate you guys. Thanks for hanging out with me for a little bit and um, I'll see you next time.
Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Michelle. Peace. Thanks again for listening to Getting to the Core. To access previous episodes, along with transcripts and additional resources, visit risa.net forward slash podcast. Thank you.